Let's pray. Father, your grandeur and your supremacy and your rule and your sovereignty, your greatness is beyond our comprehension. You are genuinely unfathomable to us. The magnitude of your greatness is, as your word says, inexpressible, indescribable, unmentionable, unbelievable, because we really can't fathom the extent to your greatness. And with every word that we speak about you, every good and true word is just a glimpse of a greater reality about who you are that we will spend the rest of eternity enjoying as we learn more and more about you forever. So this morning, as we open your word and we see who you are, Teach us by the power of your spirit and reveal to us your greatness, your supremacy, your reign, and your rule over our lives and over all that happens. Show us the power of your sovereignty and also show us the goodness of your sovereignty to us and how you draw us into you with Christ. So we exalt Jesus this morning and pray that you would work powerfully through your word. And as Isaiah 55, 11 says, it will not return void, but will accomplish that for which you send it. And so we trust you and trust your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So today's text gives us a list, a list of characteristics to be, or as he says in verse 12, to put on. And before he gives us the list, so keep in mind, chapter 3, we've gone through a series of lists already. We're only in verse 12, and Paul keeps giving us list after list. You know, before it was lists of sins not to do, and lists of things that we are, and then a list of examples of unity, and now we've got a list of things to do, or to be, or to put on. So we've got this list. But underneath this list of good, godly, Christ-like characteristics is a foundation upon which that list stands. And Paul tells us about that foundation, but he doesn't dive into the depths of that foundation. He just tells it. He, just, he says it as if it's automatically known. And we're going to explore that a little bit. And what we probably won't have time for is looking at the actual list of characteristics and describing each one of them. And we may work on that a little bit next week because the list continues on in the, into the next verses. And so we've got a lot of Christ-like characteristics that we're told to, to have and to do and to be that we need to cover. But before we get to any of that, we have to see the foundation upon which all that stands. And that's what we're going to look at today. So first we'll explore this foundation and then we'll see how that foundation continues to work throughout our Christian life. So to produce these traits in our lives by obedience to this command to, verse 12, put on these things. So Paul says in verse 12, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, 
compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Earlier in verse 10, Paul tells us that God has already put on us, put on us, the new self. And that new self is Christ. So the only way that we're able to fulfill this command and put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience is because God has, as Paul says in here, here in verse 12, because God has chosen us. And his mission in choosing us, he also says in verse 12, is to make us holy and beloved. So we become holy and beloved through Christ, and we become more like Christ by putting on these characteristics which are already ours in Christ. Meaning, God makes us holy and beloved by choosing us. And then in being chosen, we receive Christ who lives in us and works through us to make us more like him. And in our daily living, Christ's likeness looks like compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. And I think there's a way in which human beings, I think we can look at this list of things and say, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be compassionate. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be humble and meek and patient. And so any time a situation rises up in the day, I'm going to like muster up this strength or this ability to just be that thing. So, oh, someone's asking me to wait. All right, I've got to be patient because the Lord tells me to be patient. Now, that's not bad. That's not a bad thing. That's a, that's a good response if you desire to grow in these characteristics. But I, have, I think there's a better way. I think there's a better way to achieve these things. And I think that better way is what Paul talks about when he uses the word chosen. And I, and I, need, I want to explain this for you, and I think it's going to take a little bit of time to kind of lay out or exposit just this word chosen and holy and beloved and to help us understand that ultimately the aim is not to seek these characteristics and try to produce them in our life, but the aim is to seek Christ who is these things and become more like him. And the natural, or I should say, the supernatural product of pursuing Christ is that these things just come out of us. So, it's important to understand that this is not us searching for these characteristics or, or pursuing them as if we can kind of create them on our own, but that we're pursuing Christ. So ultimately... Because we have all these characteristics in Christ, Jesus is perfectly compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient. He is those things perfectly and completely. And so I don't need to find them on my own. I just need to find Christ as he has the perfected version of them. And he is mine and he's in me and he has those things and they're available for me right now. And so it's important to understand that because we are not working toward these holy characteristics. We are working from Christ's character. That's a huge difference. That we're not working toward these characteristics, we're working from these characteristics. We're working from Christ who has these things. So instead of going to get them, we have them, we need to access them, and as we go forward, they will come out of us. But to access them, we need to pursue Jesus. So it's a slight variation to the way I think we tend to think. And 
Instead of pursuing the characteristics, we pursue Christ, and from Christ comes the development of these things. And if that happens, it will begin to look like in those moments when someone's mean to you, are you going, how are you going to respond? Are you going to be kind? When someone tries to teach you, are you going to be humble? When someone's hurt, are you going to be compassionate? When you're waiting for something you want, are you going to be patient? Like, these are things that should naturally pour out of us if we're pursuing Christ and in Christ. So we're not supposed to conjure up compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We're supposed to draw near to Jesus and in doing so, grow in our knowledge of him, which develops the mind of Christ in us. And then with the growing mind of Christ in us from new thoughts and from new knowledge, we, in continually developing an understanding of God's will from his word, we grow in our ability to express, uh, to express these characteristics to others, to the church, to the world, and even to ourselves, to our family. So it's vital in our understanding that we do not create these characteristics, but that we already have them in Christ. And then what he said, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, is that as we pursue Christ, the Holy Spirit will manifest the character of Christ out of us. And that process not only honors and glorifies God, and it not only blesses and encourages others, but it also satisfies you with the joy of the Lord, making your endurance to continue to grow possible because Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So as we pursue Christ and Christ satisfies us, which he will, that satisfaction is joy. And the joy of Christ in you strengthens you to continue in your sanctification. It's a pretty awesome process and actually rather simple concept that God has created for our sanctification. Pursue him, get satisfied in him, you get filled with joy, and joy in the Lord is the strength that allows you to continue to grow. So, there are two ways that I can uh, teach this text. One, I can describe each of these characteristics one by one and then tell you to behave that way. Can explain what compassion looks like, give an example of Jesus being compassionate, and tell you to do that. That might work, at least for a little while, as you try to go about your week and muster up enough humility or compassion or patience in various scenarios each day. But eventually, you're going to run out of steam because that's too self-dependent. And it won't last. Or the second option is I can tell you why and how you can supernaturally express these characteristics without depending on your own strength. And it comes from learning a specific reality about God. And, and the whole goal here is that our aim is not to be or to express these specific traits. Our aim is to be like Christ, who then manifests these traits by the power of the Spirit in a supernatural way. And I'm going to go with option two, and here's why. So instead of explaining the traits one by one and saying, be like that, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to show you the sovereignty of God over your salvation, over, I should, to be more specific, over your justification 
and then in your sanctification. And why Paul mentions it here is so vital to being compassionate and kind and patient and meek and humble. Because Paul's premise for the pursuit of these characteristics is that you are, verse 12, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. The reason we are capable of obeying the command to put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience is because we are chosen. So Paul includes this doctrine of election. And he includes it here and then gives no defense for it and really no explanation of it. And the reason he does not defend the doctrine here the doctrine of election, is because he defends this doctrine in other places in Scripture. And in most cases throughout the New Testament, election is not defended. It is just stated as a fact by the author. And the reason it's stated that way is because in the first century, this was an automatic belief to those who were under the teaching, direct teachings of Jesus. Because we see Jesus express the doctrine of election all over, all over the Gospels, but really in, in, the, in the Gospel of John, there are so many texts that Jesus is cueing right in on you can do nothing apart from me or you can do nothing apart from the Spirit or you can't have anything unless the Father grants it to you. That concept, he repeats throughout John over and over. So to the early church, this was an automatic belief. It didn't always need defense, but Paul also wrote other letters to other churches, and the purpose of those letters was that they would circulate among the churches. So Paul doesn't have to defend election in this verse because he knows that the Colossian church would have also received the Ephesians letter and read that letter as well because that would have got circulated. And Paul expresses the, the concept of election in Ephesians chapter 1 and in other places, and he knows they already have that as a background. And then they also would have got the letter to the Romans. And they would have read the letter from the Romans where Paul expounds on election even more. And so he knows the Colossians don't need every single time that he mentions the word elect or chosen or predestined or anything like that in any of his letters. He doesn't always have to go into this long diatribe about what election is because he covers it throughout the letters and the letters circulate and the church knows. And so, in a case like this, verse 12, Paul writes, chosen as God's chosen ones. There's a whole doctrine right in that statement. And my responsibility as a preacher and a teacher is to teach you the foundational truths that underlie biblical statements like these and to explain to you what the author already knows based on other texts and how that knowledge of the author influences his statement in the text that we're studying. That's exposition. That's what it is. To say what's not explicitly stated in the text, but to use the author's statement and understand the, Paul's theology as a whole from the entire New Testament and actually the entire Old Testament too, so the whole Bible, and to understand Paul's theology when he makes a statement like, as God's chosen ones. And so underlying this list of characteristics is this doctrine of election. So you might be thinking, well, what does the doctrine of election have to do with 
being compassionate or kind or loving or patient or whatever the characteristic of Christ is. What, is that, what do they have to do with each other? We'll get to that. So I want to make a defense for the doctrine of election. It is not even close to an exhaustive defense. Um, but I think it will help us bolster up, bolster up sound doctrine from which we can grow into Christ's likeness and then kind of be in this constant state of like trust and dependence on Christ who will manifest his character out of us through the spirit so that we can obey his word and glorify God and be satisfied by the joy of the Lord. And then after making a defense for this doctrine of election, I'm going to explain how God's sovereign election produces these five characteristics in us and how we can actually pursue compassionate, kind, being compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. So, election, the doctrine of election, is basically this idea that's conveyed throughout the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, that God doesn't only choose whom he will save, but that he actually creates every human throughout all of human history, so from the beginning of time to the end of time, with every person he creates, he creates with one of two destinies in mind. A person is made by God either for glory or for destruction. Proverbs 16.4 God made everything for its purpose even the wicked for the day of disaster. And for those who were chosen, Ephesians, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And what we see there is not only that God chose us before he created anything, but that the reason he chose us was according to his perfect will. This was his sovereign desire, sovereign will, which is that those who are chosen would praise him for his grace to choose us and make us holy like him, and then share in the glory of his grace forever, which magnifies his glory. So we can see two realities played out before God created anything, and that reality is that God knows, God knows every person he makes, and he knows every person he will make, and some he makes for holiness, and some he makes for destruction, well, that doesn't seem fair or loving. That doesn't seem like the God I learned about in Sunday school. But the reality is, the Bible conveys this reality over and over, and it's the, the purpose of it is expressed in Romans chapter 9. Romans 9 shows us that there is a very good and glorious and great and joyful purpose to this distinction when God creates people and that he creates one for glory and one for destruction. And just recognize also that if there's any concern in your heart that that doesn't seem fair to people who are made for destruction, what you're expressing is the very thing Paul commands us to express in Colossians 3.12, compassion. 
That's compassion you're having. It's good and it's okay to look at those whom aren't those who aren't saved and feel compassion for them, to, to want them to be saved, to want a degree of fairness in our minds that says they can be saved too, and therefore I can't accept that God would create someone specifically for destruction. That doesn't make sense to me because doesn't God want people to get saved? There are two examples in the New Testament where the author writes, God desires that all would come to the knowledge of him. And I'm not even going to address that today because that requires an understanding of God's two wills. If you're a woman, come to Women's Bible Study on Tuesday mornings at 6 a.m. and we'll cover that, right? So, but, but it, there are concerns that come with it. And ultimately, the question about this reality that Proverbs 16.4 tells us that God made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster, that God creates individuals for destruction. And then this other reality that God creates individuals to be chosen to be made holy in Christ and holy and blameless and without blemish according to his purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. It's two different people that he creates. And it doesn't seem loving or fair. And so Paul answers that concern in Romans 9. So from Proverbs 16, 4, we see that God intentionally makes wicked people for trouble. Your version might say trouble or disaster and some versions say or for destruction. And Paul confirms this truth in Romans 9 as well and also answers the Romans' concerns about the fairness of God to make people for hell. So if you think to yourself, that just doesn't seem fair or loving, the Romans ask the exact same questions. You're, you're not alone in that questioning because they ask it and Paul answers it. So in Romans 9.10, Paul begins his defense. And this is one of just many texts that where Paul defends or where the authors defend this concept of election. But this is one of the most really uh, filling expositions of election where difficult questions get answered. So in Romans 9.10, Paul writes, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So this answers a couple of concerns. One, our election has nothing to do with what we will do in our life. Common belief in the church, which is erroneous and false and not supported in the Bible, is that God looks into the future. Before he created the world, he looked into the future and he sees that we will choose him and that is why we are called chosen because God knew that we would choose him. The problem with that theory is, well, there's multiple problems with it. I'll give you two. Number one, it's not supported in scripture. There's just not a Bible verse that says that. 
I think what people would tend to refer to in that concept, if, if their defense for being elect is that God knew I would choose him, it typically comes from this word foreknown or foreknowledge or foreknew, like Romans 8, 29. Those whom the Father foreknew, he also predestined. But that Greek word foreknew, which is epignosis, is, a, is not just a, it, it's a, it's a word that means knowledge, but the, the, prefix, the prefix uh, epi, epi, really, in epignosis of that Greek word foreknew, it, it conveys a relational knowledge. So, like, you know, my kids always ask me a bunch of, like, questions. Um, a lot of would you rather. Do you guys ever get a lot of would you rather questions from your kids? Would you rather have no legs or no arms? Stuff like that. And I'm like, uh, can I not play this game? I don't like this. And I also get, my, one of my boys always asks, like, um, you know, would you rather, and then he throws out, like, two superpowers, you know? Like, would you rather be, like, invisible or, like, have super speed? Would you rather be, like, incredibly strong or, like... Whatever, I don't know. And one that comes up sometimes is just like, would you like to know the future? So think about if you knew the future. If you were given like this random superpower to like see the future and you could look into the future at any time and see what's going to happen. That would be in some sense foreknowledge because you can look into the future, you can see what happens and take that knowledge about what will happen, come back to the present and go, now I can use that future knowledge to determine what I'm going to do today. Okay? But what we can't do if we had that superpower is actually go into that time period and have relationships with people because we can't time travel. But God can time travel because God isn't constrained by time. He's outside of time. And that's why a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day because God can be with King David 3,000 years ago. Well, 3,000 years ago, and with us today at the exact same moment. To him it can be all, because he doesn't exist in linear time, moment by moment. He exists outside of it, and so he can be in it in any way he pleases, at any way, in any time. And so this concept of God foreknowing something like it's an informational future knowledge just does not grasp the concept of God existing eternally without time restraint. And so he doesn't just know what we're going to do in the future. He actually does two things. Number one, he ordains what's going to happen in the future, which I'll defend in a little bit. And he will ordain the future events that happen. And not only that, but this word foreknowledge is relational. He doesn't just know you and the choices you'll make in the future. He knows you relationally. That's what that word epignosis in the Greek means. It's a relational knowledge. He goes into the future, knows you, relates to you, loves you, cares for you, serves you, dies for you. He just, he knows you the way that I, like, know my friends. And so, that word foreknowledge isn't about God looking in the future and seeing what you'll decide. It's about God going in the future and saying, I love you, you're chosen. The second problem with this idea that God goes, looks into the future is that it doesn't fit the definition of the word chosen. So it just doesn't make sense. If our salvation is dependent on our choice, then why would the Bible constantly call us chosen? Why wouldn't the Bible just call us choosers? 
If God just knows the future and knows, what we, knows that we will choose him, then we are still not technically chosen. Because he's still not choosing us in that scenario, so why would he call us chosen? This is unbiblical because we're still choosing him in that concept and not him choosing us. But the reality is, all of you experience your salvation as a choice because we do choose him, but as Christ says, you love me because I first loved you. You choose me because I first chose you. When we choose Christ, what we're expressing is 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that the Holy Spirit produces in us a regenerated heart, and from that regenerated heart, he gives us the gift of faith, and with the gift of faith, we believe and confess Christ. So we are, when we make a choice to believe the gospel, to believe in Jesus, that choice is coming from God effectually putting into effect him choosing you. He chooses you. His spirit regenerates your heart. You are given the gift of faith to believe. And with the gift of faith to believe and with the power of the Holy Spirit who is given to you, Ezekiel 36, 27 and 1 Corinthians 12, 3 and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, with the gift of faith, you believe. And then you choose him. You say, I choose Jesus, which is only possible in the spirit. And Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Why would God call us chosen if he didn't choose us, but we chose him and he just knew in advance that we would choose him? That still doesn't qualify us to be called chosen. It doesn't make sense grammatically, linguistically, or logically, and certainly not biblically. Also, the text that I just read in Romans 9 reveals that God's election is predicated on the fact that that Jacob and Esau's future behavior in their life had nothing to do, nothing to do with their salvation. It had nothing to do with God's election. Paul says, from the text I just read, in, in Romans 9, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, before they had done nothing either good or bad. That statement reveals that God's election is determined by God's will, not human will, not human work, not human exertion, which Paul says as we continue in Romans 9.14. And Romans 9.14 starts with a question. Paul asks the question for the Romans. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part. No, there is not injustice on God's part. Because Paul answers it, by no means. But Paul's question is essentially addressing the concern that this seems unfair. Isn't this injustice for God to create one person for destruction and one person for holiness and glory? Isn't that injustice on God's part? Which is Paul's understanding that that's the question the Romans have, so he asks it for them. And yet Paul answers his own question in verse 14. He goes on and says, By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion or work, but on God who has mercy. 
Meaning God's election is determined by God's will to give salvation to whom he wills and is in no way dependent on our human will or our human work or our human choices to believe. Instead, is dependent on God's decision to have mercy on whomever he decides to have mercy on. Still kind of leaves us wondering about this whole injustice and unfair is that a loving thing to do kind of concern. But Paul goes on further to validate the point he just made. In verse 17 he says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, So here's an example, Roman church, of what I'm talking about. For this very purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. But what did he do to Pharaoh? He hardened his heart. And so Paul says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So Paul still understands the concern for God's fairness here, and he asks the fairness question again to the Romans in verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who, for who can resist his will? So the Romans' question is this. If God elects whom he wills, then how can he eternally punish those whom he intentionally doesn't save? If they can't save themselves, only God can, and God chooses not to save them, then it's not their fault that they go to hell. It's God's fault. That's the question. That's the concern. Paul answers this question in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This answer is vital to our understanding of God. It kind of seems like a cop-out answer, doesn't it? Right? Like, Like Paul's refusing to answer the question. Like instead of giving us reason and logic and un, a, a, like a, a biblical explanation for, well, that doesn't seem fair. And Paul's like, hey, you can't ask questions. Like, seems like he's refusing to answer the question, but he's not. Because he will answer the question in the following couple verses. But before he does, he has to say this. And it's very vital that he says, but who are you, O oh man, to question God? Because what the Romans don't understand about God is that he can do whatever he wants. He can make his creation for whatever purpose he wills because they are his. Like, if you took, and and what Paul's about to explain is this idea of the potter and the clay. That God is the potter and we're the clay and he can do whatever he wants with the clay. So imagine you go, into your, you go home and you, you go into your yard and you dig up a bunch of dirt and you get you know, a few feet deep and you start pulling out clay and you bring that clay out and then you start making something out of that clay. Maybe like a ball or a bowl or a glass or something. You start making that thing out of clay and then you take that clay thing and you walk into your driveway and you smash it on the ground and make nothing out of it. Is anybody going to throw a fit? at you for what you did? Do you, are your neighbors all going to come running out screaming at you? How dare you take that clay and smash it on the ground? That's not fair to the clay. 
No one's going to care. Nobody's going to care about that. They might think you're weird. They're <laughs> like making clay jars and then smashing them into the ground. But no one's going to complain. Why? Because they look at clay and they go, it's just clay. Like, what do I care? Well, what if we give more value to the clay? What if we went to the store together and I bought an 85-inch, $5,000 brand new TV? And I was like, hey, will you help me bring this home? And we pulled out of the truck and I go, okay, let's just sit on the driveway here for a second. And you're like, okay, cool. And then I take out a shotgun and boom, I put a hole in it. Like, done. Thanks for your help. See you tomorrow. The person who's helping you would be like, what? You just spent $5,000 on this huge, massive, really expensive, awesome TV so you could shoot it with a shotgun? And you say, yeah, it's mine. I can do whatever I want with it. Now you're going to think I'm crazy because the value of that thing is way more valuable than the clay, right? So as value increases, the offense for doing what you want with your possession increases. Here's the issue. My, if I go into my yard, I own the yard, I own the clay in the yard, I own the TV, I pull out the clay, I do what I want with it, it's mine. No one can tell me what I can and can't do with it. And if I decide to make a, a, a vessel of honor out of it and make a cup that's useful to me, great, I can do that. If I decide to take that clump and burn it, I can do that too. Here's the thing. My authority over that clay and my value as a human being over a lump of clay is huge, right? But the difference between me and that clay, if this is the difference between me and that clay, the difference between me and God is what? Infinite. He has more rights over me as a valuable human being than I do over a lump of clay that no one would bat an eye at. So Paul's answer in verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He is telling them, who are you to think of yourself as more valuable than you are? You are clay. Now, I'm not saying humans are worthless. We're made in God's image. And this is not, I'm not trying to make you feel like garbage and Humans are garbage and we're just worthless. It's, it's not that kind of message. It is, a, it is not a devaluation of humanity. It is a humbling of humanity. And it is not a devaluation of humanity. It is an elevation of God. And a, hum, and, and a humbling of us. That's what Paul's after. Well, he can't do that to us. Paul's answer is, who are you? You were made by him. He can do whatever he wants with you. Only arrogance can ask that question. Only arrogance can say, well, you can't do that to me. That statement, which is really the heart of the question by the Romans, that statement is so arrogant. You can't do that to me. I'm too valuable. Here's the reality. The only people who express this concern are those who were chosen. Only believers even talk about these concepts, and so they're the ones who are frustrated with this idea of election, if they are frustrated with it. But that's not what it's intended for. It's intended for something better. And I'll get to that. 
So Paul's point is this in his answer, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You think too much of yourself to question how God determines the best way to glorify himself. You think too much of yourself to question how God determines the best way to glorify himself. If God's best way to glorify himself is to make vessels or people for dishonor or for destruction, then that is the best way. And who are we to question God's perfect will for getting the most glory that he deserves simply because we don't think it's fair? And that is Paul's argument as he continues in Romans 9.21. He says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? See that? Potter has all the right he wants over the clay. And with the clay, he can choose how he, what he makes out of it. An, a, a vessel of honored use, a vessel of dishonorable use. And now Paul explains why God makes vessels or people for dishonorable use. Because the question would be, why would he do that? Why would he even make a person just to not save them? Just literally for destruction. That doesn't seem to make sense to us. And Paul, again, with this concept of you're not understanding the sovereign rule, reign, and mind of God. You realize that he says his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And he lives in unapproachable light unapproachable that's why we need jesus because god is unapproachable and christ is a human he is 100 god and 100 human but he's a human flesh and bones whom we can access the father through without christ there's no access to the father he's unapproachable and beyond our understanding and unfathomably wise and he will get his glory however he chooses. And Romans 9 tells us that he chooses to get his glory by making vessels for honorable use and vessels for dishonorable use. But why would he make an, a vessel of dishonorable use? What's the purpose of creating a person for destruction? Verses 22 through 23, Paul answers, What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Paul is saying that God makes people for destruction to reveal to us, his chosen, the magnitude of his grace and mercy to choose us and save us and love us and that expresses to his chosen and beloved ones the riches of his glory. What we see in the destruction of some vessels is what we deserve. So if your question is about fairness, and if you've ever heard me preach, you've heard me say this, if your question is about fairness, Fair would be we all become vessels of destruction. Fairness is everybody goes to hell. That's fair because that's what we deserve. Notice that God, even for the vessels of destruction, he endures with much 
patience. They are not without cause for their destruction. And we deserve it too. So why, instead of asking the question, why would he make a vessel for destruction, ultimately the question is, all vessels should be made for destruction, and the fact that he would save any is called what? Grace. It's not an injustice. R.C. Sproul explains it like this. I love this picture. I wish I had a visual for you. Think of a circle. You got a circle, okay? Inside the circle is what we call justice. All right? So you got a circle, and inside is justice. Everything that's justice fits inside the circle. Outside of the circle is anything that we will define not injustice. Anything outside of the circle we'll call a non-justice. And there are different kinds of non-justice. You have one non-justice is injustice. Well, another type of non-justice is grace and mercy. So when, they, when, the, when the Romans ask the question, isn't this injustice by God? No, 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 not at all. Because what the Romans are realizing is, I'm not seeing justice in this. And Paul's saying, exactly, you're seeing a non-justice, but it's not injustice, it's grace and mercy. So where's the justice coming? In the death of Jesus Christ that pays for your sins. So what does this doctrine have to do, this doctrine of election have to do with putting on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience? Well, God's choosing us has a purpose, and that purpose is expressed in our text, Colossians 3.12, when he calls us holy and beloved. The whole purpose of this doctrine of election is that we would see what we deserve in those who get, go to hell and recognize the grace and mercy of God, and it would produce something better than questioning God. It would produce joy and praise and worship and exaltation to Christ that we would be considered chosen at all, just like the apostles who get beaten in the synagogue in Acts 5 and thrown out, and they go, we pray, they praise God and rejoice in him that they were considered worthy that's what being considered worthy to do anything for Christ, anything in God, to be chosen or even to be beaten for his name, whatever, whatever form of worth we get to experience should produce praise, not questions. And that's why Paul says, who are you to answer back to God? This should not produce questions. This should produce joy because of God is sovereign in your election. He's also sovereign in your sanctification. And your sanctification is all about putting on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The whole point is that we become holy and beloved, which is why he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. God's intention in electing us for salvation is that we would become like Christ, that we would become holy and righteous as a means to express to the world the glory of God as well as to express to us the goodness of God to make us like him. And we see this concept revealed in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, which says this. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, why did he love her and die for her? This is why. That he might sanctify her, or cause her to spiritually grow. Might sanctify her, how? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So he saves us to 
sanctify us with the word. Why? So that he might present the church to himself, because he's the husband of the bride, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Though that is for husbands, Christ is the example, and what this reveals is that the reason we are chosen and elected is so that Christ can sanctify us through his word into perfection, holiness, spotlessness, and to be without blemish. Meaning, if our salvation is dependent on us choosing, then so would our sanctification be dependent on our work. But since justification, when we get saved, that moment we experience salvation, that justification is is dependent on God's work, so also is our sanctification dependent on God's work to make us holy in Christ. As Proverbs 2.8 says, he preserves the way of his godly ones. Meaning God creates the path of righteousness that leads to holiness. I'm not saying that we don't have a participatory role in our sanctification. Of course we do. Philippians 2 tells us we do and commands that we participate in our sanctification and spiritual growth. What I'm saying is that even our participation is a part of God's sovereign will. Isaiah 26, 12, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you, you have indeed done for us all our works. That is God's sovereign will acted out in our behavior and in our work and in all our functions. Jeremiah 32, 40. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. That's in the Old Testament. But it's not talking about Israel. That's a prophecy about the new covenant in the, in the Messiah, Christ. So this is directly for believers today. I will, God says, I will put. I will not ask. I will not request, I will not meander, I will not beat around the bush, I will put. Apart from their desire to have me put, I will put, because we see this in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 as well, apart from their desire or will or want, I will put my spirit in them so that they fear me in their hearts. And that idea of fear is this idea of reverence, which ultimately produces worship. And then they will not turn from me. God, that is God's continual work to keep us in him, as he says in Jude 24, that we are kept in Christ. It ensures that we are kept in him by producing in us that which he has already put in us, Jesus. And that's the whole point of this idea of put on. He gives us a list of characteristics to put on because those characteristics are Christ. Put on Christ. So all this sounds a lot like God is doing everything, so why even do anything? Right? It kind of sounds like we get into, the, when, you, when you first start exploring the sovereignty of God, you can start to, un, you start to maybe teeter on this fatalist perspective that like, oh, everything's determined. My function and my purpose and my actions and my will mean nothing, so what's the point? But that's not the reality because God not only determines the ends, but he also determines the mean by which that end happens. 
Why pray if God's just going to do what he wants? Because he may be using your prayers as the means to accomplish what he wants. Why share the gospel if everyone's already elect or not? Because God says in Romans 10, right after Romans 9, how beautiful are the feet of those who share the good news. Why? Because you are the instrument that God sovereignly uses to save people. So whether they're elect or not, you don't know. Well, if they're already elect, or maybe they're not elect, what's the point? Why not? I mean, if they're going to be saved, they're going to be saved. What do I have to share the gospel with them? Because the only way people can get saved, according to Romans 10, is if they hear the gospel. So someone has to share it with them. And God is not only sovereign over who's elect, but he's sovereign over, he's sovereign over who shares the gospel with them, and that they hear the gospel, and if they hear the gospel, and how they hear the gospel. Sovereign over all of that, the whole process. We don't know who's saved, who's elect and who's not. But here's the beauty. Someone's elect. Instead of thinking, oh, well, what's the point of evangelism then? Think, you're telling me that God has people out there already ready to be saved. Well, this is easy. Because not only does that mean I'm going to catch some, at least, but it also means it doesn't matter. But I mean, it, it's not dependent on me. This is not like this huge, overwhelming, overbearing concern. Like, oh, I have to share the gospel or I'm going to die. It's like the God has already elected those. Your responsibility is simply to go out and say the gospel. And he's already, like, like Jesus said, there are people not in this town that are mine. Right? There are still people in this town that are mine to be saved. Like, he's got, he, he knows his elect. And so... Our responsibility is to share it with everybody. And when we do, we just have to go, they either believe it or they don't. It's not up to me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, one sows and other waters, but it's God who gives the increase. God's the one, we might plant seeds and water those seeds, but it's God who makes it grow or not. So the reality that there are elect people out there is an encouragement to our evangelism and an encouragement to the need to pray, not a discouragement. And so there's this idea, though, it kind of feels, you know, like, oh, this is God doing everything. What's the point? Scripture is full of commands, though, right? It's full of commands that we have to volitionally pursue and obey. Meaning God's sovereign election of us is the foundation for the command for us to obey and be like Christ. Okay? God's sovereign election of us is the foundation of do all these commands, if we understand God's sovereignty in our lives, it shouldn't produce an attitude of what's the point then. It should produce an attitude of God has ordained for me, not only those who are elect out there, but God has also ordained for me in my sanctification good works. Because Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Well, where do I find these good works? Which God prepared beforehand. Whoa, what do I do now? Walk in them. He is not only sovereign over your election. He's sovereign over your sanctification. He's sovereign over your walk. This brings incredible encouragement. There's no, what's the point then? In my heart, in my attitude, I go, you're telling me. 
He's got people already chosen that can be saved, and I just have to share it with them. You're telling me he's got a path in front of me laid out with nothing but good works, and all i got to do is walk that path? Christianity is way easier than they make it sound. That's way easier than, hey, go into the forest, create a path, find as much compassion and humility and kindness and patience as you can, and hopefully along the way you get to the end and it's going to be hard and you have to climb some trees and dig up some dirt and it's going to be hard. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Don't go pursuing these concepts. Pursue Christ in recognition of a sovereign work to before you walk, have for you and in front of you good works prepared just for you. Just for you in your life, in your work, in your family, in your home, and in the church, and in the community, God has all these good works prepared for you to walk in. That's a huge encouragement. I love God's sovereignty for that reality. I gotta walk it. I gotta do it. I recognize that. I have a participatory role in that process. But the fact that I don't have to conjure them up on my own power is a huge relief. Well, how do I walk this path? Christ! How do I pursue these things? Christ! Well, how do I get Christ? Go get Christ! Pursue Christ! Where do I get Christ? Where do we get Christ? In the Word. This is a huge encouragement that God has ordained good works for you. So God's sovereignty works better with our desire to obey than it does with this questioning, what's the point, right? So therefore, our pursuit of compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience is not about our efforts to self-produce these characteristics. When we believe the supremacy of God in our justification as well as in our sanctification, this motivates us to pursue obedience to his commands because we don't have to produce them. We simply have to walk in that which he's already prepared for us and that he has already produced for us in Christ whom is in you. He's done all the work. He's done all the work, meaning you don't need to conjure up compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We simply need to pursue Jesus, that's it. Pursue Christ. We need to be in his word, pray to him, commune with him, enjoy him, worship him, praise him, and depend on him. And if you're thinking, yeah, but I still have to like choose to do these things throughout the day. Yeah, but the, the way you experience that choice will be completely altered when you're not trying to cherry pick characteristics of Jesus to function in in every moment of the day when instead your whole entire life, mind, and heart is consumed with Christ because he's all that you want and he is all that you pursue and you're so filled with Christ. You're so filled with the Spirit because you spend so much time in the Word and in prayer and just full of Jesus. You're like, oh, I just love being like Jesus and you read about Jesus and, and you see all the things he does and says and you read scripture and you're encouraged and you see all the commands and because you're in the word and you're communing with him you grow in the mind of Christ and as you grow in the mind of Christ and you experience a, a situation during the day your brain goes oh yeah I just read a text about that it said don't do it and you're like easy thank you for putting that good challenge in front of me Lord so I could do the good work of obeying you we don't have to pursue these characteristics. We have to pursue Christ. And when we do, he fills us with his spirit and his spirit will manifest these traits of Christ in us and out of us. As Ephesians 2, 9 says, we will have no boast in ourselves. 
for this work because we do not and did not pursue these traits. We pursued Jesus, and he is producing himself in me so that when we do what we are commanded, our boast is not in ourselves or our work. Our boast is in Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, it is only by your grace and your goodness and your mercy that we are capable of doing anything good. Help us not to only just to think of election, but to think of your sovereignty to work in and out of every moment of all of our days, producing in us righteousness, the righteousness of Christ that enables us to walk in a way that honors and glorifies you and ultimately satisfies us with your joy. Help us to trust your sovereignty. Help us to trust your will. Help us to trust your word, to believe it, to live in it, and then to walk in it by your sovereign power so that when we do, we don't praise ourselves. We honor and praise and exalt and glorify you. So give us a desire and a passion and a pursuit for Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.